Well, good morning. I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful, wonderful Lord's Day. What a spectacular day in Kingsburg, California. What a day Mary and I have looked forward to, along with uh, so many dear friends, to being here. You know, when, uh, when a family reunion takes place, it's, uh, there are a few handshakes, uh, mostly hugs, and, and that's the way it should be. And uh, outsiders looking at that would say, well, we at least get what's going on, even if we don't know the people. Well, I can tell you that uh, to come to Kingsburg, Mary and I feel like uh, uh, it's a family of hugs. And uh, I just want you to know how encouraged we are when we come here. It's just amazing. So I want to tell you just a few things about yourselves uh, as as I'm here. You've you've heard someone say a few things about me, and whatever credence you put in Time Magazine, you can factor that in, whatever you think. But uh, I I want to tell you some things about yourselves, uh, about this church. I want to tell you that to come to be amongst you is to be amongst some of the kindest, most gracious Christians, uh, showing the fruit and the gifts of the Spirit, and uh, what an encouragement that is. To come amongst you is to see the way Genesis 127 is supposed to be lived out. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. (laughs) And uh, I, just as I was getting ready to come up, I heard the gurglings of a baby, uh, and I'm just thinking, that's exactly the way it should be. I actually preached a message in Southern Seminary's chapel this week on the wonder of childhood. And uh, This should be a place, when you find God's people, Christ's people, you should find people with lots of wiggling and squiggling, and uh, little people being carried in arms to come here is to see you living out the Genesis mandate, so God bless you. And uh, to, to come amongst you is to see the bonds of family and kinship. But to come amongst you is also to see how the church as the family of Christ becomes that new family for people. Because to come amongst you is to recognize that even those of you who are not related by, by genes, you're related by faith. And the common joy and koinonia that you experience here. I want to tell you that you are known where no church in Kingsburg, California would ever expect to be known. And it is because of the clarity of this ministry and of the power of this pulpit and the reputation of this congregation. I want to tell you that around the world, you are making an impact for Christ. And I get to hear a bit of that as your friend. I live in Louisville, but I, I pray for you often, and I hear often about Grace Church of the Valley, and I've been excited for you. <coughs> Excuse me. The last couple of years I've been here, you get all choked up, you see. The last couple of years, uh, I, I, I've seen progress towards where you are about to go, and uh, that phenomenal new facility. I did have a tour yesterday. And I can tell you that it is one of the finest exercises of stewardship I have seen in a very long time for a congregation. Every square inch is going to be useful. Let me tell you something else. If I were speaking there, I would point to it physically around me. That is a room, the big auditorium. The big auditorium is built for one thing. And uh, that one thing is preaching. Now, Now, worship. Of course, is the larger context. It's built for that, but it is built for preaching. And, and it is a live room. You're going to find it easy to hear preaching. And by that, I mean easy to hear, as in in the ear. And yet, wherever the Word of God is preached, it is the Holy Spirit who takes it from the ear to the heart. Well, that's what we pray is going to take place. I just want you to know how happy I am for you. 
The, the conviction and the, uh, the pastoral model of your pastor, Scott Artavanis, is just something known far beyond California. And uh, I just wanted you to know how glad I am uh, to know your pastor as my friend and so many members of the pastoral team here and others. I just, I just wanted to tell you, uh, I'm going to have to stop because I have a higher priority, which is the preaching of the Word of God. But uh, my heart is full and so is Mary's as we come to be amongst you. The hymn, O God, Our Help in Ages Past, reminds us in one of its stanzas, time like an ever-rolling stream bears all its sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. That's a bit morbid, isn't it? It's also true. Time like an ever-rolling stream bears all its sons away. You're in an, at an incredible moment of transition as a congregation, an incredible moment of transition. You, you, you're going to be looking at something completely new as where you are meeting and the opportunities that that new place will afford. As human beings, we can't but think in a linear progression of time. There is a before and there is an after. We, we know our lives are changed before and after we celebrate a birth, before and after we celebrate a wedding, before and after we stand at the grave of a funeral, before and after a graduation, before and after, well, an old and a new chapter in ministry. And that's the way it's been for God's people all throughout Scripture. I want you to turn with me to Joshua chapter 1, to Joshua chapter 1. Before we turn to that passage, thank you. Uh, I just want to remind you of uh, the transience of life and of uh, and a humbling reminder to the church uh, just in the last week. In the last week, the headlines came of the death of Dr. Billy Graham. And I know at least one in this congregation, and I suspect many, made a profession of faith uh, in the context of a Billy Graham crusade because he preached at least two crusades in Fresno in the long course of his ministry. And... America's talking about this, and it's interesting to hear the secular media trying to talk about Billy Graham. And I want to tell you one of the greatest things that's happening in these days. It's impossible for even the secular media to talk about Billy Graham without talking about the gospel and without talking about Christ. The last night with some friends, I was just speaking uh, as one deeply indebted to him, when I was elected president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary 25 years ago in 1993, uh, Dr. Billy Graham called me. As I told the folks last night, uh, T.W. Wilson, who had been with Billy Graham for years, called first to let me know that Billy Graham was going to be calling me because otherwise people wouldn't believe it was Billy Graham who was calling. But Dr. Graham called and it turned out that, uh, that he had lost two friends to usefulness for the Christian faith because their faith had been subverted when they had gone to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary when it was a liberal institution. And he knew that I had been elected to return it to the faith, to return it to an unquestioned commitment to the faith once for all delivered to the saints, to the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture and the purity of the gospel. It was 25 years ago. Since then, the Lord has allowed everything we had hoped for to take place and has brought about a vindication of that plan and of that purpose beyond anything we could have imagined. 
the Lord has blessed us with over 5,000 students and a faculty that now for a quarter century has stood without question for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But it was a battle I was called to lead 25 years ago, and it was a battle in which I had apparently a few allies. But it turned out one of them was Dr. Billy Graham, who called me and said, I know the importance of what you're doing, and I want to do whatever I can to help. So I took him at his word, and I asked him to speak in my inauguration as president. You have to understand, in our context, that was absolutely massive. That was Billy Graham coming to stand beside a 33-year-old newly elected president of the flagship institution of the Southern Baptist Convention saying, I'm putting my reputation behind what he is doing. And at various turns over the last quarter century, Billy Graham has assisted in ways that have gone beyond what I even could describe uh, for the recovery of the the gospel and the word of God within an institution. So the, uh, the passing of Dr. Billy Graham, the last time I was with him in person, I knew it would be the last time I'd be visiting him there in his home. And uh, his, his dear wife, Ruth, had gone to be with the Lord, and he missed her tremendously. And he was in his late 90s already. He died this year, of course, uh, this week at age 99. And uh, he talked to me of heaven and of how much he was looking forward to heaven and of how he was looking forward to the realization of what he had preached for so many years. But here's what I'm thinking this morning. I'm thinking of the fact that a part of what we need to recognize in this before and after is the fact that evangelicals in the 20th century kind of lived on the idea that all we needed for the cause of the gospel is the right evangelist to land in town and preach the gospel. And the Lord blessed that ministry, the ministry of Dr. Graham, beyond anything that he could have imagined in 1949 when he preached that great first crusade in Los Angeles, California. But I want to tell you that what we know from Scripture is that the most important work of the gospel is what takes place in local congregations. And that's why I am so thrilled to be here with you, because the enduring work of the gospel is not found in someone who comes to town and leaves. The Lord will use that. But the main cause of the gospel is carried out by congregations planted in communities, made up of believers who are gathered together, who week by week service by service, day by day, serve together. And you as a congregation are about to experience a massive before and after. We turn to Joshua chapter one. We will look together at the first nine verses. I'll read aloud. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory." No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause the people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. 
This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. As Christians, we have to be very careful how we read the Old Testament. The, the, the first injunction is we must be careful to read the Old Testament. There are far too many Christians who neglect the Old Testament, and the Old Testament, as Paul reminds us in the book of Romans, is there for our instruction and our encouragement. We do not read the Old Testament as someone else's book. We read the Old Testament as our book by God's grace and God's gift. It, it records the Old Covenant. That's why we call it the Old Testament. But we only understand the New Covenant and the New Testament in Christ by understanding how it fulfills perfectly the Testament of old. And furthermore, we come to understand that God's purpose of salvation has a history, a history that long predates the emergence of the church. The church is the fulfillment of promises that were made of old. And that before and after is something we see right here. In the, in the life of Israel, there's a before and an after, just as there is for your congregation. The second warning to us as Christians reading the Old Testament is that we are not to read the Old Testament merely to moralize. The temptation comes to us to read the Old Testament and we'll read about David and Goliath or we'll read about Gideon or we'll even read about, as we shall think about just shortly, Numbers chapter 13 and the spies sent into to Canaan, and it's very easy to moralize and just draw principles such as, well, just be brave, or, or, or just, just trust God, or, uh, or, or just do right according to the law. But as true as all of those insights are, that's not actually the purpose of the Old Testament. The purpose of the Old Testament is not to show us how great any human being is, but there's only one hero of Scripture, and that hero is the one true and living God. And thus, the third principle is whenever Christians read the Old Testament, we need to read the Old Testament in terms of the flow of God's covenantal promises. That's what we see here. First of all, the fulfillment of the promises that God had given to Israel. But even as we are thinking about this text, the question is, why this text? Well, well, it is because Israel was about to cross the River Jordan. There is no historic event after the Exodus that is so important as Israel crossing the River Jordan. Crossing the River Jordan was Israel taking those steps, finally allowed by God to take those steps into the fulfillment of the promise, a promise that God had given to Abraham and to his descendants, a promise that they would inherit a land, a land so graced and blessed that it would be flowing with milk and honey. It would be a land that would be a gift to Abraham and his prosperity, his posterity, his heirs, and his kinsmen forever. The before and after is really clear. And the before and after has been coming for a long time. That promise was given to Abraham generations, even centuries ago. And that promise appeared to be taking an extreme detour in Egypt until God showed his purpose of salvation by rescuing Israel out of captivity to Pharaoh in Egypt. And time and time again, Israel will be reminded that they were brought out of Egypt by God's outstretched arm and his mighty hand in order that he might show all the peoples of the earth that he is the Lord and that these are his his people. These people become proof positive of who he is and of his character 
and of his unchangeable, unshakable promises. By the way, I'll just cut to the quick. We need to remember that the church before the world is the visible sign of God's faithfulness to his promises. Go back to Israel for a moment. Israel, you will recall, has been delayed in entering the land of promise because of the disobedience of their fathers and mothers. In questioning the Lord and rebelling against him in the wilderness, the Lord had said unto the children of Israel that they would not cross into the land of promise, not this generation, but their children would. Not this generation because of their disobedience and their lack of faith, but their children would. And then in one of the most humbling reminders of the consequences of sin, Moses is not going into the land of promise. Moses, to say Moses is simply to invoke the most famous historic leader of, of Israel, the, the agent and prophet of the Exodus, the mediator who pled with God for Israel, given Israel's disobedience. But Moses himself is not allowed to lead the children of Israel into the land of promise. So a generation has died out and their children are ready to go in. Moses has died and now Joshua is going to take his place. Joshua is going to be the agent of leading Israel into the land of promise. But who is Joshua? If you have your scriptures, look with me to Exodus chapter 17, verse 9. Exodus chapter 17, verse 9, we hear of Joshua. What we hear of Joshua is this. So Moses said to Joshua... Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Now, you can't read some passages in the Old Testament without a faint smile. This is one of them. Moses says to Joshua, you are going to go and lead this battle while I watch from this hill. Now, <laughs> there's a reason why it happened that way. The most important thing to recognize is that when we meet Joshua, he is a man of action. He's a man of obedience. He's a man under authority. Moses told Joshua to do this, and look at verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses told him. It's an astounding statement, given how many people did not do what Moses told them. What distinguishes Joshua? The first time we meet Joshua, when Joshua shows up, he shows up as the one who does what Moses told him. Later in the book of Exodus in chapter 33, Joshua is identified as the assistant to Moses, still a very young man, identified as a very young man. He's the assistant to Moses, and he knows what he ought to do. He, he does what Moses commands him to do, but even without the command, he knows what he, he is to do. When Moses goes into the tent of meeting, Joshua guards the gate, the door to the tent of meeting, so that Moses cannot be interrupted as he meets with God in the tent of meeting. He, he, he knows what to do. But you know enough that your imagination has already gone to Numbers chapter 13. So we turn to Numbers chapter 13, and here is the turning point in the life of Joshua and in, and in the life of Israel. Because Israel's disobedience in the generation that has been wandering in the wilderness is mirrored in yet another disobedience. It is one of the most heartbreaking understandings as we read the Old Testament. 
that it is disobedience after disobedience after disobedience after disobedience. But God is faithful to his promises because as he says to the prophet Ezekiel, I am true to my promises, not for the sake of your name, but for the sake of my name. Over and over again, he will say this. In Numbers chapter 13, we read that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan. Now look at the language very carefully. The next four words are essential. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. Now, what's important about that is God says in the first person, I am giving this land to Israel. Now, in terms of how we should read the scripture, it comes down to this. If God says, I am giving, then it is given. But Moses, as instructed of the Lord, sends out one spy from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And you know the story already. The 12 spies went into the land of Canaan and they found it to be in terms of its agricultural abundance beyond anything they could have imagined. So much so that it took two men to carry out simply one gathering of grapes. It was made clear in the text. It is flowing with milk and honey, but it's also filled with people. Canaan was not evacuated of people. There were people in the land who claimed that the land was theirs. The Lord said it was not theirs. Instead, it belonged to Israel. And he sent the spies into the land in order to get the lay of the land and to understand, to see the promise of the land. But you'll recall that the, I love the way the King James puts this, the spies brought back an evil report. Actually, 10 of them did. Ten of the spies brought back an evil report because they saw the inhabitants of the land and they were filled with fear. In verse 32, I tell you what, look back at verse 30. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out saying the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. Now, what we find in Numbers chapter 13 is a spectacular act of disobedience. And it, it comes down to those four words I pointed out to you. It's God saying, I am giving this land. I, I have given. I am giving. It, 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 it's to question God's power and God's promise for the spies to bring back an evil report. What, what should they have come back and said? They should have said, you should see the size of the people there. God's going to do a very big thing. Yes, when we compare ourselves physically to them, we felt like grasshoppers, and to them we looked like grasshoppers. But you know what? They're about to find out what grasshoppers uh, sent by God can do. But instead, they brought back an evil report. And having, having experienced the, the exodus from Israel and their forefathers, they are now repeating the very same sin by saying, we're not going to cross the river. We're not going to cross the river. We're not, we're not up to that. They said there's not going to be before and after just an eternal before. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, 
more about Joshua as we follow through the story. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, it begins by telling us in verse 1, so Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. But you'll notice he then calls Joshua. Look at verse 3. The Lord your God himself will go over before you. Notice that. The Lord himself, he will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, into their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Notice these words. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you, and he will not leave or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua in verse 7 and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Now, now did you notice the words there? They are the same words that show up in the main text of our concern this morning in Joshua chapter 1. The very, the very same words. Do not fear or be dismayed. Be strong and take courage. Now, how's the wrong way to read this text? There are several wrong ways to read this text as we think of Joshua 1. But one wrong way would be to look at this text and say, well, here's a matter of ancient history. It's, it's of historic interest. This explains to us the goings and the, the comings of Israel and explains to us how Israel finally crossed the River Jordan. And, and thus, it's just of historic interest. Here's another wrong way to read it. Another wrong way to read the text is to say that the main point is that Joshua and the children of Israel were in their own strength and in their own power to be strong and courageous. That's a fundamentally wrong way of reading the text. The text will not allow you to read that if you read it honestly. Because whether you're looking at Deuteronomy 31 or you're looking at Joshua 1, it's be strong and be courageous because I am the Lord and I am giving this land to you. We have to understand what disobedience is in a biblical perspective. A lack of faith, which amounts to disobedience. What is it? Well, in Scripture, it's sin. Well, we know that. But, but what kind of sin is it? It is disobedience. Here's, here's one of the most difficult concepts for us to understand. The Old Testament makes this clear again and again and again, and so does the New Testament. Every form of sin, whatever form of sin it is, takes its root in some form of disobedience. And in this case, it's a failure to trust God to be faithful to his promises. When obedience means we know exactly who God is, we know exactly what he's promised, and because he has promised and because of who he is, then we will do whatever he calls us to do. When we get to Joshua chapter 1, the, the call comes down to crossing the River Jordan. The, there's no going back. The, the, there, there's, no, there's no turning back from what it means to invade Canaan. So we, we talk about crossing the river. It's really an invasion. And, it, and it's an invasion by a motley crew. They really are a bunch of grasshoppers. It is a motley crew. You're talking about Israel that's been wandering in the wilderness. That is not exactly West Point. 
They have been wandering in the wilderness for, for generation after generation as, as they had to wait for an entire generation to die out. And, and, and they're wandering in the wilderness. And now this wilderness, nomadic people that have had no land of their own, who have been ca- held captive in Egypt and have now find, found themselves wandering in a horrifying, spare, sparse, dangerous wilderness for decades. Now they're going to invade the land of promise. There's no going back. Joshua is at the center of this. The text is from the book that bears his name, but this is not really a story about the heroism of Joshua. Was he heroic? Yes. But why was he heroic? He's heroic because he believed God. And and everything that follows simply flows from that. He simply understood who God is, Yahweh, the great I am, the Lord God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He understood that no, no one can withstand this God. He comes to understand he's the only true and living God. All the other gods are but idols. They are all all imbecilic fallacies. They are all lies. They are ashes that one may hold in the hand. And so even as all these people who are now occupying the land of promise, they have all their little tribal deities and they have all their little horrifying practices. Joshua knows as powerful as they look and as big as they are, it is just going to make the one true and living God look greater and more powerful because he is faithful to his promises. You look at the text closely in verse one, we are told that it was after the death of Moses recorded, of course, most classically in Deuteronomy chapter 34. It's after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, by the way, when, when Joshua shows up, when Joshua first shows up, he shows up named Hosea. We're told there in Numbers chapter 13 that Moses called him Joshua. So like so many times in scripture, there's a change of name. And whenever there's a change of name, pay close attention. When Abram becomes Abraham, that's a before and after the covenant. When Simon becomes Peter, that's a before and after the confession of Christ. When Saul becomes Paul, that's before and after the Damascus road, when he came to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. And and for Joshua, who's a very young man, a very, very, very young man, when he is chosen in order to, to be one of the 12 spies, he's already identified as the assistant of Moses, and Moses has changed his name from Hosea to Joshua, which means salvation. And amazingly enough, in the book of Nehemiah, his name is changed again to Yeshua, the very name that will be given to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Well, as we read this text, we hear the Lord speak to Joshua. The Lord spoke to Moses, but Moses is now dead. And the Lord now speaks to Joshua and he says, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land, which I am giving to you. Just as in Numbers chapter 13, the Lord says, I am giving this land. And so it's not, I want you to go take this land. It's not, I'm giving you a promise of this land. We'll see how it turns out. It's in the construction of the words, I am giving you this land. Once again. 
Every place the sole of your feet will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. He then describes the, the, the geography of the land. And then in verse five, the promise, no man shall be able to stand before you. They may look big. You may think you look like grasshoppers. They may think you look like grasshoppers, but they're about to find out what grasshoppers can do by my power. And then he goes and says, you're going to cause all the people of the land to leave. And then in verse 7, only be strong and very courageous. Now, that's what Moses has said to Joshua in Deuteronomy chapter 31. Only be strong and courageous. Now, here's the question. Why are these words repeated over and over again? If Paul tells us in Romans by the Holy Spirit that we are to read the Old Testament as Christian believers in order to gain instruction and encouragement, what kind of instruction and encouragement should we gain from this text? We understand it in the flow of biblical history. We're, we're thinking here in terms of biblical theology. We're not just moralizing the text and abstracting it and say, be strong and courageous because we're such strong and courageous people. I got to tell you, you don't look that strong and that courageous. I don't feel that strong and that courageous. But for this, We know the God who is always faithful to his promises. And if he says, I am giving you this land, then guess what? He is giving you this land. And and yet, here comes the exhortation. For our instruction and for our encouragement, over and over again, be strong and courageous. Repeated several times by Moses to Joshua in Deuteronomy chapter 31. But this isn't Moses talking to Joshua. This is the Lord speaking to Joshua. And he says to Joshua, be strong and take courage. Now, why do we need to say that? Because, well, here's the obvious. We need to be strong and take courage. And, and, And if... If we didn't say everything before this exhortation, then it would be completely misunderstood. Because it would be like a general saying to a battalion or an army or a division being sent out to war, you guys are the greatest fighting force on the face of the earth. Go and conquer. That is not... Look look at who... Jordan represents. Look on the other side of the Jordan, one side and the other side. Look at who Joshua is facing. It's a bunch of people wearing desert garb. It's a bunch of people who've been carrying everything they own and their possessions from place to place, tent to tent. It's a bunch of people who have been surviving on manna every single day given by the covenant promises of God. This does not look like Patton looking at the third army. This looks like Joshua looking at God's motley crew. Be strong and take courage. Why? Because this strange assemblage of wandering Jews is going to conquer all the powerful peoples who currently lay claim to a land that isn't theirs, but God is giving to his people. Be strong and take courage over and over again. Three lessons I want us to see. Number one, Joshua trusted God and his promises as unconditional. God trusted, God entrusted this mission to Joshua, but more than anything else, Joshua trusted God. And he trusted that God is and was and will always be faithful to his promises. When God issues a promise, it's irrevocable. When he makes a covenant, it is unconditional. He will fulfill what he promises because that is his character. Yahweh is faithful. 
So as Joshua received this command from the Lord, and as Joshua looked at Israel encamped on the wrong side of the Jordan, ready to go on to the right side of the Jordan, he understood this may not look like many. And, and, and Lord will say to Israel many times over in the Old Testament, I didn't choose the most powerful people. <laughs> I chose the weakest people in order to show my power. He says, I didn't choose the greatest of all the nations or the most populous. I, I chose the small Israel in order to make clear that I keep my promises. And by the way, the very existence of Israel to this day is not because of the powerful faithfulness of the Jewish people. It is because of God's faithful covenant promises. It will endure so what are we to learn from this? We are to learn that we too are to trust God and his promises and understand these are unconditional promises. Secondly, Joshua was called to lead God's people into God's promises. So this tells us something else. God's people need leadership. They need to be led into the fulfillment of promises. Now, here's a biblical perspective on that. This is, first of all, the role of Christian parents in the home. What are Christian parents to understand? We're to understand our covenant responsibility to lead our children into God's promises. So, so that begins right in every home. In every home, a part of what it means to be the father as the patriarch of the family and, and, and to be the mother and the mother and the father together as parents, it is our responsibility to lead our children into God's covenant promises. That means that you're doing exactly what you do here. You bring your children to church. That, that means you preach Christ to them in the home. This means you raise them in the nurtured admonition of the Lord. It means that you teach them the Bible, even when they don't understand what they're learning. You, you hide God's word in their heart because the Holy Spirit does things with that word that you can't do. The Holy Spirit will take that word where you can't go. And, and then we preach the gospel to our children, understanding that salvation comes to all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of their sins. And we pray to see that in our own children, our responsibility is to bring them constantly into the hearing and the knowledge of God's covenant promises. That's the purpose of the church. That's the purpose of the local congregation. You as a congregation, first of all, are led. That's why the Lord gives the church pastors and teachers. Why? It is because it is the responsibility of the preacher, the teacher of God's word, to lead God's people into God's covenant promises to preach the word in season and out of season. And a part of what you're doing is in this new era in the life of this church, you have established a place where the preaching of the gospel can be even expanded from what it is now so that more people can hear the preaching of the word of God and more people can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and hearing believe and believing be saved and then becoming a part of the congregation, grow in grace. Conform to the image of Christ. Could there be anything bolder or more ambitious or more exciting than that? To be a part of seeing God's promises lived out right here in Kingsburg, California, in a way that defies the wisdom of man, in a, in a way that, 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 that people will note. And, and, and your hope is not that people will say, what a great preacher you have. And, and, and your hope is not that people will say, what a great wise leadership this church may have. And you hope that people won't say, what a beautiful facility this, this church has. What you hope is that people say, evidently God's blessing those people. And, and I want to know what that blessing is. You want people to say, look how God, look how great God is. 
that such a thing would happen in this generation, living in, a, in an America that's increasingly secular, increasingly resistant to the gospel. This is a church that isn't in retreat and isn't getting ready to climb into caves. This is a church that just put right out there on the interstate highway, a clear declaration of the fact that Jesus saves. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? Third, Joshua's ministry was defined by the word of God. This is what so many miss. If you're just going to moralize Joshua 1, then you say, be strong and take courage. Be strong and take courage. Just like you're sending the Boy Scouts out on a camping trip. Be strong and take courage. Just like you're sending an army into battle. Be strong and take courage. Well, it's be strong and take courage because God is who he is. And it is be strong and take courage because he has instructed us. This is what so many people miss in Joshua chapter one. Look at the prominence of scripture. Look at verse seven, only be strong and very courageous. Look what follows immediately. Being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, has commanded you. Now look how it follows. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. It's not over. Look at verse eight. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. What was the primary weapon that Joshua was, was assigned to take with the children of Israel? It wasn't a spear. It was a book. The word-centeredness of the word of God's people, the word-centeredness of God's covenant people, wherever they are found, is made so graphically clear here in Joshua chapter 1, where preparing God's people for moving into God's promises, the main exhortation given to Joshua is, you don't deviate from the word of God, not to the left nor to the right. You stay right in obedience to the word of God. You turn from it in no way. You obey and you teach and you fulfill every word of the law and then your way shall be prosperous. And then you will have good success. Well, now the picture becomes a lot clearer. This is not Joshua and the children of Israel told, because of who you are, be strong and courageous. It's the Lord saying, because of who I am, be strong and courageous. And it's God saying to Joshua and through Joshua to the children of Israel, I have spoken to you. I haven't spoken to anyone else. In Deuteronomy, the children of Israel will be reminded of this. Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire and survived? And the answer is no. One of the reasons why, as a matter of fact, the chief reason why Israel was reminded that it would know that it and it alone is God's covenant people, it is because God has spoken to Israel and to Israel alone. And to Israel, God through Moses had given the law. And to Israel, God through the prophets had spoken. And to Israel was given the book of the law. So what arms you as a congregation as you're getting ready to enter into new territory? What arms you is the word of God. 
This text reminds us of the word-centeredness of God's people wherever they are found. And if that was true of the old covenant people, how much more true must it be of God's new covenant people? That explains why when Paul speaks to Timothy, he exhorts him, preach the word in season and out of season. That, that, that's why when Paul describes the, the warfare to which we are called and the armor that the Christian is to wear in that spiritual warfare, we, we, we are told we have only one offensive weapon, and that is the sword which is the very word of the God. Is the sword of the spirit, which is the very word of God. That, that's the only offensive way. Everything else is defensive, from the helmet to the shoes. The most powerful weapon we have is the word of God. But you'll notice how obedience comes down here to such specificity. You shall not deviate from it to the right hand, nor shall you deviate to the left hand. So why this text? Why now for you? as a congregation. Well, first of all, the powerful metaphor, crossing the River Jordan before and after. Certainly you feel that. You, you can't help talking about that. This is the last time you are likely to have this kind of service in this facility. And just think of all the untold hours of labor that have been channeled by so many faithful people and even just setting this up. This didn't happen. A group of teenagers at Young Life did not leave the room looking like this in order that you can come in and worship. And, and, and then when you were in the theater and, you've been in, and you started out, you understand how God's promises have unfolded. Some of you have been here for the length of that entire story. This story is not decades long. It's about 12 years long. And, and, and some of you remember almost every turn in that unfolding story. And my guess is that 12 years ago, someone had told you, you're going to be moving into a massive, massive facility built just for this church, and it's going to be right over there where there's been a cannery. You wouldn't have believed it. But are you believing now what God is going to do on the other side of the River Jordan through this church? Well, the metaphor is just so powerful, the, the before and the after. There is a before and after. And, and by the way, the before and the after is not God's lack of promise and, and, and then the assurance of his promise. God promised in the very beginning just through something as apparently small as a Bible study. That if you will obey my word and deviate neither to the right hand nor to the left hand, if you will base this ministry upon the word of the Lord, and, and if the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, then I'm going to bless what you are doing. Not because of who you are, but because of who I am. And I will always be faithful to my promises. Do you feel that now? And so the before and the after is not God's inadequate promises and now God's new promises. It's God's constant, extravagant, gracious, infinite promise from the very beginning until now. But there is a before and an after. Just as it is in every one of our lives, so is it in the life of a congregation. So what's the bottom line? The promises are different. You haven't been promised a land flowing with milk and honey. That was the promise of the old covenant. And by the way, that was never just about milk and honey. And it was never just about land. It was never about less than milk and honey and about land, but it was never just about land. It was always about God's extravagant covenant promises to Israel. The promise of being his people in the midst of a wicked and dying world. But we're the people of a new covenant. We do not follow Joshua. We don't merely follow Yeshua. We follow Jesus Christ, 
And, and as the maker of a new and infinitely better covenant, we have received the promises that have been given to Christ's church. Jesus said to his disciples, wherever two of you or more are gathered, there am I in the midst of you. This is Jesus who, who promised his church, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We, we've not just been promised a land flowing with milk and honey. We've been promised eternal salvation. We've been promised a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, and a new earth. We've been, we've been promised the fulfillment of the gospel seen visible before our eyes such that sinners come to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are promised the transformation that we get to see in lives. We get to see the effect of the Holy Spirit ministering in the lives of Christ's people. We get to see the effect of the preaching of the Word of God. Not only day in and day out, Sunday by Sunday, we get to see the effect of the preaching of the Word of God over time. Look in this congregation and imagine a snapshot of this congregation 20 years later. Imagine some of the 17-year-olds in this room who are then 37 years old and look forward with promise to what God will do by the preaching and teaching of His Word and a succession of faithfulness until He comes. Two final points. Grace Church of the Valley, thanks be to God, was established on a biblical ministry centered in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the unquestioned truthfulness and authority of God's word. My exhortation to you as you're on this side of the Jordan getting ready to cross, my exhortation to you is this. Do not retreat from the scriptures. Do not retreat from the scriptures. When you're in a land that's much more comfortable, do not retreat from the scriptures. When you had to get up early in the morning, some of you, to set all of this up, and when you, when you had to go to extraordinary difficulty just to be able to gather together, you were reminded we're doing this because we believe in the singular power of the word of God preached. Don't retreat from that when you don't have to set it up every Lord's Day. Don't retreat from that. Don't miss sight of the fact it's all about getting the gospel told and the word of God preached faithfully. Do not retreat from that. And in the word of God, hear the exhortation, do not depart from it. Isn't that interesting that right on the threshold of what you would think would be the greatest day in the history of Israel throughout all time, wouldn't you think it strange that God had to say to Joshua, do not depart from the book of the law to the right hand or to the left? Why was that necessary? Because evidently, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, it is very, very easy to depart either to the left or to the right. This church is established upon the rock. Do not retreat from it. Do not depart from it. Make certain that in a new place, you are the same people. Make certain that in a new, beautiful, wonderfully comfortable place the Lord has provided, you preach the same gospel. Make certain you keep the same priority upon the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Make certain. Warned, instructed, and in turn encouraged by the experience of Israel. Make certain that when you look back in days to come, to the before and the after, that the greatest days of this church's faithfulness 
are after, not before. Let's pray. Our Father, you are so gracious to give Israel your word. You are so infinitely gracious to give us as the church your word. You are so faithful to your promises, including the promise that if any sinner confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and believes in their heart that God has raised him from the dead and repents of their sin, they will be saved. Father, may that gospel and this word never depart from our lips or from our hearts, nor from this pulpit and from this church. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.